Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anywhere and anytime? I hope right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Wouldn't we all want to know the best time to eat our meals to lose weight? Or the best time to work out to be more fit? Or maybe just the best time to take your medicine? There is a new field of medicine called chronobiology that is discovering the answers to these questions. Chronobiology studies the effects of our inner biologic clock and how it affects our metabolism, our mood, and our overall health. My guest today, who I'm really excited to have on, is Dr. John Hoganish. He is an internationally known expert in chronobiology. He's a professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. So without really any further ado, I'm looking forward to this discussion, and I hope all of you will learn a lot about this new fascinating area of science. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. John Hoganish to the podcast. Dean, uh, happy to be here. Okay. So I always like to get a little background on uh, my guests, um, whether it's for my own personal interest, and I hope the listeners enjoyed as well, too. How did you end up in this field of chronobiology? Well, it's uh, kind of an interesting story. Okay. I did a BA in history at USC, hmm. and then um, I was studying to be a cold warrior, and then... Um, Gorbachev brought down the wall in 1989 and kind of blew my career out of the, out of the window. Okay. <laughs> so I switched over to biology, uh, really loved it and decided to do neuroscience at Northwestern. So I went to Northwestern and my first lecture, my first class at Northwestern was by this legendary National Academy member, Joe Takahashi. And, uh, Joe T told the story of, how uh, how genes impact behavior. And one of the stories he told was about the discovery of the period gene. So it was late 1960s, early 1970s, and Benzer and Kanapka um, did a mutagenesis screen of Drosophila, uh, fruit flies, mm-hmm. and they discovered flies that got up earlier every day, so early-type flies. Uh, personally, I find early types annoying. Um, they also <laughs> we're going to talk found, about types in a second. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they also found a uh, long type flies. So later type flies, I want to roll, roll with those cowboys. And they even found, they, they even found flies that were completely arrhythmic and they all mapped to the same locus, the period locus. And so it was, it took about 14 years for the Hall, Rosbush and Young labs to clone the locus. And that was the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. Wow. Well, I'm going to just interject that my introduction to chronobiology was probably about 35 years ago. I was sitting in a lecture on my lunch break during my residency. We used to like the lunch breaks. They used to give us free lunches. Free food is good. <laughs> free food was good. And it was a break from my everyday putting IVs and all the stress of working in the hospital. And uh, I was at Columbia and they brought in this great, they had this great uh, guest speaker program. And one doctor came, I don't remember his name, unfortunately, because he's not as colorful as you are, because I would remember you if you gave me a lecture. <laughs> um, he, but he was talking about how chronobiology, remember, this is 35 years ago, and right. I don't know how much research was into it then, but he was just, he brought up the fact that 
it's interesting, patients that were getting chemotherapy that, that believe it or not, the timing of the chemotherapy was much more effective at certain times. And, you know, and he was going through the cell, <laughs> going through some very basic science of, you know, remember the G steps in cell synthesis. It was taking so me back likely, to my yeah. undergraduate biology days. But I remember sitting there thinking, you know, that makes total sense. I mean, you know, I mean, unfortunately, they probably give chemotherapy in the morning or the middle of the day, you know, when a lot of the nurses are around, but maybe it's better to have it at night. And, you know, just it kind of was filed in the back of my head. Right. Um, so anyway, that, that always like kind of kept my eye open for that. But, you know, you mentioned something I wanted, I do want to get into it. And I think every listener has some, um, skin in the game, I would like to put it for this, is that the different type of what we call chronotypes. And that's the type uh, they're sometimes characterized as the larks and the owls. Right. And so maybe you could explain it a little bit. And I think this is important because there's a little bit of this struggle. A lot of us will say, you know, I'm not a morning person. Like, I'll just tell the audience too, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, when I went through my third and fourth year of medical school, you know, you go through different rotations and you keep wondering, I went all, all these years, you know, I wanted to become a doctor. I'm now on the precipice of becoming a doctor, but what area of medicine do I go into? Do I become a surgeon? Do I do obstetrics and gynecology? You know, and I did like always the detective work, the thinking of internal medicine, which is what I ultimately went into. But I also knew, I saw that the surgeons and the obstetric guys, they were up at 4.30 in the morning. And I was like, I don't function well at that time in the morning. Right, right. So I'm more of an evening guy in some ways. So anyway, with my whole, you know, discussion there, what what is it about larks and owls? I know there's a spectrum. Can people adapt? To, tell me your thoughts on it, you know, in the, the macro so it's view. It's interesting that you bring that up because last year's residence class, we actually wired up with, uh, with Fitbits mm. and phased them. Phasing means that you're going to look at their locomotor activity, their sleep-wake cycle, and try to figure out uh, when they wake up on their own. Like during the week weekdays, let's just say for, for sake of argument, Monday through Friday, when do you wake up, when do you go to sleep, and Saturday and Sunday, when do you wake up and when do you go to sleep. And so more or less, uh, we can tell from the delta, the difference between the weekdays or workdays and the weekend days, your rest days, uh, what kind, what what chronotype you are. There are, as you mentioned, there are early types. There's probably a, a few percentage of of people in America are early types. They like to get up early. Personally, I find them annoying. Um, <laughs> and there are also uh, late types that like to stay up late. I I like to party with those cowboys. Um, <laughs> and um, the same was true in the residency class. And our 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 hypothesis is that if you if you take those residents and you shuffle them to the appropriate jobs, maybe we can reduce the dropout rate. Like the the people, if you try to pick an early type and you put them in the ER at three o'clock in the morning, they're not, probably not going to be doing very well. All right. And so, can we can we mitigate some of the some of the dropout by just getting the right the right people in the right spots? Yeah, I would think that's really important. And I, I think for personal happiness, you know, do you feel also, I mean, because they do say, you know, I've read about this, there's a spectrum. It's not like you're only, uh, you know, an early riser, you're only a late, I mean, some people are clearly. Um, but 
is there some adaptability? I mean, if I, I feel in my own personal life, there is, because I've noticed I'm getting up earlier and earlier these days when something that I really want to do, <laughs> like play tennis, <laughs> um, that, you know, so that people can adapt if they need to is, would you say? You can adapt. And there's many mitigation strategies to change your, what we say is phase, but to change your chronotype is another way to say it. Um, and, and, and one of them is, is as simple as getting early morning light and late evening light. Mm. You know, I, I just want to mention this too, and I just, I, we will jump around a little bit, but I tell patients of mine, because I think I mentioned you right before we went on, you know, I see patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. And a lot of them, unfortunately, we'll get into this later with the diseases, but, you know, a lot of them, they're just, their whole circadian rhythm is off. You know, they're, and they tend to, sleep till one o'clock during the day and because they said they can't get up, you know, which I, you know, it's obviously true. And, you know, they have a lot of medical issues, but one of the few things I've said to them based on the work that I've read over the years, that it's so important, as you mentioned, maybe before 11 or 12 o'clock to get that early morning light, because if you can get your inner clock on schedule, you have a better chance of falling asleep at a reasonable time and maybe you just, your health will be better. You, just, you know, obviously we're dealing with energy with chronic fatigue patients. Right. So there's, there's two aspects here. One is um, early morning light. So if, if I was advising chronic fatigue patients, I would probably say, let's not uh, dark out our, our bedroom. Let's make it hmm. so that you, can, you can see early morning light. And the second thing is one of the strongest Zeitgebers is food. Zeitgeber means like timekeeper. Mm. Um, it's in German. Uh, I don't like that, but you know, it is what it is. And, and so having, making sure you eat breakfast. You know, okay. I, oh, I, I know. we're going to get into that too. I like, I like this. You know, you're bringing up some really interesting things because I said, I'm, I'm prepared today to hit all the different angles, but I, I love that you're saying that. And, you know, it's interesting too. Again, I'm, I know I keep on throwing a lot of these personal things, but uh, about 10 years ago, I had an ankle surgery and uh, it was horrible. I had to have a, a cast up to my knee and, you know, for six weeks and I couldn't sleep in my normal bedroom because I couldn't even get up to it. So I had to sleep like in an area of Achilles? my living. What's that? Uh, it was posterior tibial. <laughs> it was close. Uh, it was, it ended my tennis career. Um, but. It was interesting. I had to sleep in the living room, you know, which wasn't obviously my normal bedroom. And we didn't have like the normal dark blinds and et cetera, whatever. And it was in the summertime. I did it on purpose because I wanted to be able to get outside. I didn't want to go crazy in the wintertime. And all I could tell you was really interesting because, you know, I was able to fall asleep to some degree. But when I used to wake up in the morning, even with this big cast on my leg, the natural light and just waking up naturally was one of the most pleasant things I, I remember from that experience. So... Um, I think it's a good tip that you're mentioning, you know, that patients uh, who struggle getting up in the morning to somehow don't be in that, you know, like kind of hotel situation where you have these blackout blinds. And so it's it's so abrupt, right? It's so jarring, you know, to see natural light. Right. Yeah. Okay. I can't I can't sleep in. the. You know, some people can sleep on the beach. There's no way I can do that. Wow. Yeah. How could anybody? Yeah. I don't know. Um. Okay. Let me ask you this too, because uh, again, I think I saw it in one of the, uh, I don't know if it was a Scientific American article or two. They say that they're working on a blood test that can confirm what type you are. Is that true? And I think before it was, it was a lot more involved, you know, with, um, I mean, now it's supposed to be with some time about RNA, protein, 
genetic something. I don't know. It, you know, right. I just read. I still don't understand it. You know, and then the prior one was maybe melatonin levels. I mean, because if someone says it goes, I'm not really sure what I am. I'm. All, I am. I, I'm. Sometimes I, I get up early. Other times I want to stay out late all the time. What would be best for me to be super healthy? I mean, the the simplest thing is. Uh, is measuring your what we call your locomotor activity is when you're awake and when you're asleep. Mm-hmm. That could be an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are more sophisticated molecular tests like Akim Kramer at University of Berlin who developed this blood test looking at immune cells. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that the 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 most common test would 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 simply be looking at a Fitbit or or even asking somebody. If left to your own accord, when do you like to wake up? When do you like to go to sleep? Not, not considering work, not considering children. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so it could be as simple as that, really, right? Like, what's right. your perfect day if you were to get started? And when would right. be the perfect time that you feel good to go to sleep at night? So you're not, you know, because we all know, I mean, like, I, I, I've been at some weddings the last few months, whatever, too. And, you know, you're supposed to stay till 12 or 1 o'clock. And I'm, you know, again, maybe my age, but I think I was always like this. It was like, I'm itching to be back in my bed. I do not want to be on the dance floor at, at 12 or 1 o'clock at night. I don't think I ever did, you know, as I might have pushed myself, you know, when uh, when I was single. Do you but... remember Herm Edwards, <laughs> um, a former coach of the New York Oh, Jets? yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nothing good happens after midnight. That's a great line. I think that that should really be almost a mantra for any, you know, I, I knew actually a very, um, a really terrific mother whose children grew up in a very bad neighborhood. And that was her mantra. Nothing good happens after midnight. And uh, unfortunately, that, that I think that holds true. Um, okay, let's move on. We're going to go to a little bit of basic science. And I don't want the listeners to cringe because I think there's something important. And there was a revelation to me a while ago. And I think you're definitely the, one of the best people to explain this. So it was, it, it seemed obvious to me, and I'm sure it's to most people that our brain, our visual system, you know, which helps us differentiate night versus day, you know, affects our, our inner clock. I, I think what was the, you know, blew my mind revelation was that other cells in our body, have this inner clock, our liver, our pancreas. I mean, these cells that you think have, quote, no brain. I mean, what was, what's the difference when that cell of the liver or the pancreas, if you're in New York or you're in London or, you know, wherever you are. But obviously this was a huge, I assume, breakthrough in this field. Yeah. So maybe you could explain a little bit about the, I guess, the central clock and the peripheral clock. I, you know, this is a great point that there, there was a notion that the your brain controls sleep and your your brain controls your your timing of sleep so there's a, a long standing uh, model called the borbelli model about sleeping two processes one is process h which is your sleep homeostat more or less that's the amount of sleep your body requires so i'm 55 and i need about 7 or 8 hours of sleep to feel pretty good and if I get less than that for a period of several days, I don't feel so good, even sick. I, I just don't, I just don't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the timing of sleep. We know that that eight hours can't be split up into, you know, Chunks. one or two hour <laughs> right. nuggets. They have to, you have to go through REM cycles. And, and typically those are, you know, on the outer, on the, on the order of hours. And so you, you need, you need a chance to get your body to go through these REM cycles um, you probably experienced this yourself where you wake up all of a sudden from a dream and you're, you're completely bewildered, et cetera. 
Um, and, and, and so it, it, so there's the issue of both the timing of sleep and the amount of sleep your body needs. Like I, uh, I've noticed a lot of people in the medical field are actually short sleepers and early types. Mm. Um, so a lot of them don't need a ton of sleep. My former boss at Novartis, uh, is a very famous scientist and he only needs about five hours of sleep. Mm. And it turns out about 1% of people can, can deal with that and still be still function normally, still have a, you know, normal recall and all be able to pass the Montreal test, you know, camel but yeah listen. yeah our president passed that our yeah, yeah. president That's passed right. that That's with right. flying That's colors right. okay yeah <laughs> so but a lot of people struggle even after one or two days of short sleep and they have a hard time oh wow and and then the the other issue is you know the, the like i mentioned the timing of sleep it has to occur in a consolidated bout otherwise it doesn't really count you know, I'm interested too. I like to follow athletes, you know, their schedules a lot. I mean, whenever time I get a tidbit in the in an, in an article or paper, because you know they also have a lot of experts like yourself advising them. Because there's a lot on the line. I mean, you know, money wise, and you know, et cetera. And what I've been reading and hearing is that a lot of them now are really emphasizing extra sleep. You know, like try to get 11 hours of sleep. You know, not the typical quote eight hours of sleep because. Apparently, their performance is better. Is that uh, sort of an overall rule? I don't know so much that extra sleep is going to help, but one thing that is uh, very important, and this has been uh, decades of research, have looked at East Coast teams flying West and West Coast teams flying East. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you think about the University of Hawaii at Manoa or Alaska Fairbanks, not not just their sleep deprivation, but the the timing the timing of their day when they go to play an away game. Um, University of Hawaii is is playing Michigan actually this year. And, oh wow, that's right. Yeah, that's, wow. Okay, so that's a pretty far. That's mm. a pretty. That's like a six or seven hour uh, time change. And so their team to mitigate that damage will probably show up three or four days ahead of time. Um, to to try to make sure that they don't feel completely fatigued when they hit hit the field. Yeah, I think actually maybe we should talk about this. I, you know, I was going to talk about the eating too, but let, let's talk about this for a second. Um, let's say because uh, I, I think this whole like, concept of how of your body being in sync is a huge thing, and I'm going to curious how you do this. I like I know when I've traveled to Europe. Uh, you know, or I've gone to the Middle East, I've been to Israel, I would feel very out of sync the, the first few days. I mean, really horrible. And um, the the thing I've always tried to, you know, I've read, you know, articles where you're supposed to start going to sleep earlier. And I don't know, I, I think I found keeping my watch the same time as New York time for several days till I could get in sync. So I'm just curious, how do you, if you had to go to, you know, to Switzerland or Holland or wherever you were going to go, they said, you know, Dr. Hogan, you got to be there. You have this meeting, you got to present. So you got to be sharp and, you know, you'll be there for just a week. How would, what would be the flight that you would take? Would you take, you know, cause I, I hate those uh, red eye flights. I mean, they just, I can't right. sleep on those. I, I, I was told by somebody, sometimes it's, go, it's good to go during the, like, like the early, you know, middle of the day, you know, walk around, move around, try to sleep. I mean, try to stay on your schedule until you slowly accommodate. Would you 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it, it depends on how long you're going to be there. So I used to work for Novartis Pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. the second largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Sure. And I had to do the LA to Zurich flight uh, once a month for wow. a couple of years. Wow. Okay. So how'd you do that? And, and, and I, I usually only had to be at the meeting for one or two days. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do was uh, fly in to Zurich. Um, the corporate headquarters was in Basel. So I'd fly into Zurich around 7 a.m. Um, I'm sorry, wait, wait, you, say you, you say you would fly in. So you left, you left LAX at what time? Afternoon in LAX. Okay, and, afternoon. Okay. Yeah, and the next day in Zurich. Okay. And then I would uh, take the train down to Basel, usually an hour, hour and a half, two hours, um, and then go to the meeting, and I would – just completely, uh, I actually would, I would drink. There's a lot of, uh, seltzers over in, in Germany. So I would drink the Perrier, et cetera, all day just to keep myself awake. Cause if, if you're peeing in the bathroom, you're, you're, yeah, you gotta get awake. Up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would stay awake all day, go out for dinner with the hosting team and then crash and cause just exhausted in sleep. And then go back to Los Angeles the next day. That doesn't sound so great. I mean, I was like, picture you're going to tell me something different. I, I, I think that, you know, again, what I was saying, I would, I was doing, and I don't know if it's right or not. I would keep my watch on. So I would say, okay, you know, right now, you know, it might be seven o'clock in London, but it's really one o'clock New York time. Um, you know, this is like my lunch time. So I'll eat my kind of lunch and, um, and then it might be like four o'clock in the afternoon, New York time, but it's obviously 11 or 12 o'clock in London. I'm like, I got to take a nap. I just can't. So does that mess you up? I know also people simply say, get that, that sunlight that will stimulate your brain to keep you awake. If you I mean, want to is- shift, that's all true. Like, for example, if you're going on vacation, let, let's say, yeah, you're, let's say you're going, let's say you're going on vacation. You know, you want to enjoy your vacation. I really you know? want to enjoy my vacation. Right. And so one thing you can do on this side of the Atlantic is start to go to bed earlier or, and or use melatonin, um, low dose, uh, like 500 micrograms. You know, usually if you go to Walmart or, or whatever, you, you get a, a dose much higher dose. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. That's much higher, much yeah. higher dose. Uh, inappropriate clinically and you'll and, and the other the other weird thing about melatonin is the human body makes it hours before you go to sleep i know if people totally don't use it the right way i'm constantly the right yeah, way. I, learned, I learned from dr Terman, and you know we did a podcast on that i mean it's micro dosing it's you have to time it's a hormone i mean people don't realize it's not a supplement it's a hormone that's over the counter yeah and people don't know how to use it and as you just mentioned to the dosing most of the time you go to a cvs or Dwayne reed or any of our typical pharmacies they like five milligram and people are popping one or two of these and so i don't you know and taking it right before they go to bed, and they don't understand why they're wide awake in the middle of the night. <laughs> in Europe, it's actually controlled, so you're yeah, you're, you're not allowed to go to the pharmacy and buy it because it's used it's used so poorly, and mm. a, a lot of the times it's just chalk dust. It, 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 it's it's a very irresponsible um, mm. 
it can be a very irresponsible drug. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. So, okay, I'm so sorry. So, so what you're saying to enjoy your vacation, you would do what again? Just to give us a sort of a quick summary, you would you would fly in the afternoon. The next day that you arrive there, you would you would let's say you know again your schedule's off by several hours, like six hours. Would you try to just get up and walk around and do your Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The the early morning light is the biggest zeitgeber help you. Mm-hmm. time shifter that that our bodies have. And so I would get up early, get up early on that day. As soon as there's light, uh, eat breakfast. Don't skip. There's clocks all over your body. Every cell in your body has a clock, more or less. Yeah. Um, and so don't skip uh, eating breakfast or skip meals. Don't skip dinner. Don't skip lunch. Da, 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 da. But more or less the the getting out and being active early in the light phase will will help you to shift to that time zone quicker okay all right that's that's useful and helpful because again you know people do i know again i have a lot of patients it was really before covid who knows what will happen now post covid hopefully you know they traveled a lot they traveled like you did from from los angeles to new york to europe um you know i knew it was brutal on their body it's just uh you know, um, it's very tough. All right. I want to move on to something that you started to just allude to, and it really is so important with our inner clocks, and it has to do with food. And I'm sure also you're probably familiar with uh, the Circadian Code, the book by one of your uh, colleagues, Dr. Sachin Panda. He was my postdoc. Is that true? Oh, wow. No. I didn't know that. <laughs> he does mention you in the book. He credits, you know, as one of the leaders in the field. But okay, so this is what I'm sure a lot of my listeners, we, we had a podcast about this with somebody else. I couldn't get him to come on. Uh, but we uh, uh, actually, uh, somebody from the, um, I think Mark Moses, Moses, Moseman, he from the NIH. I'm like, I'm forgetting his last name. He was terrific. But, you know, we talked a lot about this time-restricted eating concept. I mean, people are very interested mm-hmm. in this now it sounds like wow i mean you could eat the same amount of calories as you would someone else but actually by having that window of like 12 or 14 hours where you don't eat uh and actually lose weight right um so i want to get your thoughts about the time restricted eating and the whole relationship because again you've emphasized a few times now already which i thought is important about eating breakfast you know for example somebody else who i do like a lot i wonder if you know him uh andre uh, Mikhailson, he's at, uh, he's in Berlin and he wrote, uh, he wrote something called The Nature's Cure, but he was, um, he's, you know, they're also, he runs like a, uh, one of the hospitals there. It's basically a complimentary hospital where they actually have, it's like a fasting clinic, you know, right? And, uh, but he's basically usually saying, you know, like breakfast is the easiest, um, meal to skip. And yet on the other end, somebody who he, he cites a lot of times, Volter Longo, who I did have on the podcast at USC, where yep. your alma mater, yep. he's like, in all the societies that they study that live the longest, everybody eats breakfast. So I want to shed some light on here. So you're saying breakfast is good after that time period. I mean, your, our inner clocks, our pancreas, our liver saying, hey, we want some food and it's not a good idea to skip that. It, it's not a good idea. If, if I, when, I tip, when I do a talk, I'll... I'll often ask how many of the people in the audience have ate before 7 a.m., how many uh, ate before or after 7 a.m., and how many skip breakfast altogether. And more or less, about, you know, about, you know, a third of the audience raises their hand, they ate breakfast, and a third of the audience said they skipped breakfast. 
And so right there in that room, there's a seven, seven or eight hour shift between, between people that ate food early in the, early in their activity phase and people that ate food later in their activity phase. And, uh, the, it's not like there's no data here. There's tons of, there's tons of papers on skipping breakfast as a, as a mitigation strategy. Um, and there's tons of evidence that eating earlier in your activity phase when you're awake is better for you than eating l- later in your activity phase. Uh, e- there's even a, a study, uh, equicalorie study done in Israel that was looking at, looking at timing of feeding and the group that ate early in the day, big breakfast, small lunch, small dinner lost 14 pounds on average more than the group that ate small breakfast, small lunch, big dinner. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because, you know, in Europe, I, I, I don't know what their breakfast and lunch is, but they typically would have like the later dinners, right? Um, but I, I know personally too, I don't concentrate well if I don't have breakfast. I, you know, I don't know if it's again, you know, being brought up breakfast is, you know, the very important meal of the day, et cetera, you know, but, uh, you know, I just feel I'm less sharp. You know, I mean, I can do it, but it's, I'm not, you know, I don't feel as sharp. I don't feel. And if you've been to some of the, like Spain, for example, where dinners are eaten super late. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I found that bizarre. Um, yeah, I love, good... Spain. Mm-hmm. I love Spain, the, the sunshine, the countryside. It's all beautiful. Love it. Love it. Um, but the eating dinner at 10 PM, that's not a good idea. Right. Well, that's what I think I, to emphasize. It's something that I've actually had to struggle with too. And I'm again preparing for this podcast. I started to push myself a little bit because I was also, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I was like, you know, I'd wake up a little bit and I'd have to eat something <laughs> and then go back to bed. And I, it wouldn't be a heavy thing, but I would eat something, you know? Right. And I started to realize to push myself, like, don't do that. Like, I mean, again, I think from like your work and other people's work showing that. The body really wants to go through what's called that autophagy, if, you know, for our listeners. That's like where the, the cells basically have to cleanse themselves. And if you are, you know, saying, uh oh, it's mealtime again, right? There's like, there's, you know, detrimental aspects of that. Yeah. The, the one, the one sort of, uh, cautionary note is if you, if you take, uh, healthy University of Chicago undergrads and you uh, feed them 24 seven within a, a week or two, they go pre diabetic. Mm. And you can no longer ethically conduct that experiment. Wow. So wow. It, it, it seems like eating late in your activity phase is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately for a lot of our patients, we have kids with bone marrow transplant who, who are, who are being fed on con- continuously through intravenous feeding. Right. And so the one of the trials we're running currently is trying to restrict feeding to a 12 or 14 hour time period just to make sure that we're not feeding them you know 24/7 365 for months at a time. And so we we're running a trial right now on kids with a BMT that that uh that previously were were fed pretty much continuously and now we're we're restricting it to a 12 hour time period so far, we haven't had any patients have any adverse uh, reactions to being fed over a shorter time period. And we know that feeding 24 seven is not good. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I read about that in the article in the New York Times where you quoted, you know, I guess you were doing the studies on that. And it makes so much sense because I remember when I used to 
as a hospital resident work in the ICUs. And, you know, we had feeding tubes in and intravenous, you know, you know, all kinds of, you know, support. And it, it, between the light issue, which you brought up, I mean, too, again, right, also, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, these people were exposed to light 24-7. Um, they were being fed 24-7. I mean, if you survived that whole experience, even if you were in good health, that was an achievement. And I used to look at sometimes the patients who were struggling to survive, like wondering, this can't be good. This is so against your innate nature, right? Would you That's say? right. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I personally went in last spring for a heart procedure and um, I woke up and I'm, I'm in this room. I have no uh, exposure to external light. I'm in an interior hospital room. Um, I'm getting woken up all the time. My IV popped out. So they had to put an IV back in me. Um, they're doing blood testing at four o'clock in the morning. In the morning, right. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, if you did this to a prisoner, you would probably have a court case. Yeah, they they would confess everything if they had if they had if they had the national secrets. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll tell I'll you anything it. you want. I'll do it. And the you know, just to be honest with you, the food wasn't good. It's horrible. It's very scary. I know. I mean, that's where that's where people's support systems comes into place. You know, um, just as a quick aside, yeah, people who could bring in food for their relatives and. Uh, the other thing I always found valuable on a patient, especially when they're there in the hospital a long time, to have pictures of them before they were in the hospital, because I think the residents, everybody, they treat you more as a human being than just, you know, patient X, you know, in hospital room number. I have 300. this wonderful, my, my fiance, Kelly, was there for me and mm-hmm. she came every day. Oh, wow. And this was during covid uh, And so she had to talk her way into the hospital, but oh, thankfully boy, yeah. she's really good with, with words and convincing people. And so she, she kind of made them do it. Oh, that's wonderful. I want to go back to one more thing about melatonin, because I, I think it's one of the things that's just so important to emphasize, and we have this opportunity now. So again, yeah, melatonin is over the counter here in the United States. Um, people use it as a sleep aid who like think they don't want to have to use uh, prescribed controlled substances for sleep, which is understandable. Um, but they're getting stuff over the counter in the typical pharmacy. Um, dosing seems to be wrong. As far as I know, we were just started discussing that. I mean, it seems like a lot of them are one mill, well, like five milligrams, three milligrams. And, uh, I was just reading an article actually it was in, um, this week's JAMA, you know, that, uh, Judith Owens, um, who had, runs the sleep lab, at, I think at Harvard, and, you know, she's really concerned because apparently a lot of also pediatric patients now are being given melatonin. They come as gummies and all these kind of things, and they're dosing too high. And I believe, too, melatonin can suppress your cortisol, right? I mean, over a certain level. So Certainly um, shift it. Yeah. So I guess the, the takeaway is if somebody does want to use melatonin to try and help them sleep, um, Although they may not be deficient. I mean, it's, it's typically when you get older. I mean, you, you would think melatonin would work better in an older population, correct? Like where they, there is a drop in melatonin. If they take it appropriately, maybe it will help them to fall asleep. But younger people, is that just like totally inappropriate? Uh, it, it's actually weird because younger people sleep differently mm-hmm. uh, than adults do. Like, I don't know about you, but um, one of my I – have, I have twins. They're 14-year-olds oh, now. Wow. Um, but when they were like five years old, I did like a fire drill 
and one of them woke up and uh, was able to get out of his bed. No problem. Mm-hmm. The other one, I had to carry. I carried him upside down. He did not wake up. <laughs> That's kind of a rude awakening. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm six foot one, two hundred twenty pounds. I'm pretty sure if a if a giant twelve foot person w- walked into your bedroom and carried you by your ankles, you'd be awake. But I'd get up not quick. Awake. No. Yeah, he was not awake at all. Mm. Um, and that was very frightening for me as a parent. Um, but, you know, we, we, maybe he's getting a little more alert now. Um, in, in any event, uh, melatonin can can act in two ways. One is a phase-shifting uh, agent, and it's really good at that, and that works both for adults and children. And the second way is as a ha- hypnotic. Now, it's a very dodgy hypnotic with adults, but it's shockingly effective with children. Hmm. So okay. there's two kind of doses that you give it at. Uh, uh, your body makes about 250 micrograms of melatonin er- every day. Right. So that's a very small dose, right? I mean, very, a, very small. Right. Dose. People don't appreciate that because those milligrams that are in the pharmacies are orders of, you know, of, you know, if higher. I take that three milligram pill, I'll be uh, tired the next day at noon. Wow. Uh, that I'm a very sensitive person, but okay. other people are like, it didn't do anything to me. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's both timing and the timing is tricky. It should be taken several hours, maybe two or three hours prior to desired sleep time. So if you right, so if you like to go to sleep at eleven o'clock, you normally would maybe start to take that about eight o'clock. That's right, right. And I mean, a lot of these people take it right before they go to sleep. You know, like oh, this is going to knock me out. No, and it's really bad because then if you take it right before you go to sleep, it phase shifts you. Phase delays you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you're chasing the you're chasing your right, clock. right. So this is so important, so important. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's probably one percent of all physicians know that. That's right. And um, a lot of people don't even use physicians when they're, they're no, they right. Or, I mean, the physician just looks at you know, like in my office when you come in, I have your medication list, but I also, I mean, again, as I've gotten more into holistic functional medicine, I want to know your supplement list because that could be just as important. And most of the time I'm seeing people five, 10 milligrams of melatonin as I need it. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, a hodgepodge of it's things. It's not but- a great hypnotic. It's not the way to go for sleep if, if you're an adult mm-hmm. and it has to be taken carefully. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're going to just make problems worse. One other question before we go to something I'm really interested in about, you know, the rhythm of life diagram. But what about shift workers? I mean, I used to, again, going back to my hospital days, there were times in my residency I worked in the ER, you know, the essentially the night shift from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And holy mackerel, was that, did that wreak havoc on my overall well-being? But I had to, I mean, you know, somebody has to do it. And, you know, there are people like nurses who that's their Mm -hmm. career, you know, for whatever reason they've had to. Now we've read, you know, a lot of us have heard reports that this is not good for your health. It obviously goes against your nature. What would you tell somebody? I have a patient, for example, he's a casino worker, you know, and I worry he's got a lot of medical problems for a young man. How do they best mitigate or adapt, you know, to have a reasonably good life? I mean, I think the best way to do this would be to to find the late types and have them work on the late on the late shift. Okay. Okay. And. Uh, if you're an early type and you have a job that's that's trying to trying to force you into something that's against your against your chronotype, that's what we call it. If you're mm-hmm. an early type or a late type, we call it a right. chronotype, then 
uh, it's probably not a good job for you. Okay. Um, and there, are, there are ways to mitigate it. The, and and the, the typical ways are, you know, you can use light, you can use melatonin, you can use, uh, I have, I actually have blocked out all the LEDs in my bedroom with duct tape so that there's no extraneous light coming in. Um, and, and even, even so like I can still, I can still see a little bit of light underneath the doorway and, Yeah, you know, that's a great point that you make. I'm I'm glad I just want to remind the listeners too, because I tell a lot of my patients too who struggle to fall asleep at night. And I told them one of the things that I do, believe it or not, uh, this is kind of, kind of funny or ironic in a way that, you know, at different times of my life, I was very stressed. And you know, when you're, when you're stressed, you're not going to sleep well. You're anxious and then you're anxious about whether you're going to fall asleep. And many years ago, I went on a meditation retreat. It was part of my, all of my different medical training. And when they had us like, meditating they used to sometimes you know read us really good poetry or stories and i found myself struggling to stay in a meditative state i was really ready to fall asleep and i said you know that was the aha moment you know bedtime stories there's a reason parents tell do bedtime stories so what i do is like with my ipad i put it on to um usually like a podcast or something that's very soothing, you know, and I'm hearing a story about something. So I tell my patients to do the same thing. Don't look at my point being, don't look at, no, don't look, don't read your iPad in bed, you know, don't. And I think you mentioned, or somebody else mentioned too, one of the worst things you can do is fall asleep with the TV on, right? I mean, these are all. So there's a mode in your iPad, in your iPhone called night shift mode. Mm -hmm. And so if you turn that on, if you go into your settings, of your, of your iPhone or iPad, you can turn on the night shift mode or your Android phone. Mm-hmm. And you can turn on a mode called night shift mode, which takes the blue light out of the LED, mm-hmm. makes it more sepia toned mm-hmm. or like brownish, yellowish. Mm-hmm. So the blue light is, is your body, your body is most sensitive to blue light and not that sensitive to sepia light and, and not at all sensitive to red light. Um, so that changes the the lighting of your your devices and makes it easier for you to not to not uh shift later. Do you like also I think those blue light uh what do they call blocking glasses are they effective do they typically work? I don't really no. I don't really know whether okay. or not they they work. I mean there's if you're wearing glasses, right, it can get around there. I mean, somehow yeah, coming in this way, that way. Yeah, interesting. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know people don't think about that. Okay, that's really, really good stuff to know. All right, now I'm going to get to something. I the last two things I really like a lot. Uh, I I've saved this article, this page from Scientific American. What date was this? This was. Oh my God! Well, it was from a book, The Body Clock to Better Health. It was by this guy, Michael Szymanski, but it was in my Scientific American from, I don't know, probably like probably 20 years ago, and I saved this. And it has a picture uh, called The Rhythm of Life. Right. And uh, I liked it a lot because it made sense to me. Like, there probably are the best times of day to do something. I'm going to ask you a few things, but just I want the listeners to think about this. Jeff Bezos, who's a pretty smart guy, and he has his bank account's not too shabby either. He, uh, I've heard him say that he never makes a, an important decision after three o'clock in the afternoon. And I think up to now, he's had a lot of pretty important decisions to make. So I think all of us, you know, would love to know the best time of day 
to do things. And, um, you know, on this, you probably could look it up online. There's also, um, there was again, another scientific American article, I think that talked about, you know, what our body, you know, again, from the physiological state, the different changes, but, you know, regarding being very alert or having the most coordination, you know, mm-hmm. or when should you check your blood pressure? What, what's your thoughts on, you know, again, even yourself, if you can have your perfect day to do what you wanted to do. How would you structure it? You know, if you were going to do your, your research work, if you wanted to do a little bit of exercise, if you're going to eat your meals, just want to learn from the best. Well, there's, there's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, endurance activities are best done early in the wake phase. So more or less after you wake up. So marathons are run in the morning, for example. And if you look at the, you know, four by 100 meter races in the Olympics, they're done late in the wake phase. And that, that, that seems to be backed up by science. Okay. So it, it, it turns out that your explosiveness, your strength is, is, is bigger later in the wake phase. Okay. Um, Cognitively, uh, I'm also an early type, so I I like to do my work in the morning, and your, me- your mental work. I mean, when you're when you're that's thinking, right, yeah. mm-hmm. that's right, that's right, and 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 sort of later in the evening is not a, probably not a good time to make decisions because why? Uh, I mean, Herm Edwards said nothing good happens after midnight. Okay, uh, okay. I'm going to tell you a few of my things. I'm just curious what you think. I mean, if I was having my perfect day, which today is pretty close, actually, um, I would get up and I would do some kind of exercise. I'd ride my bike. Today, this morning, I played tennis. I was really excited about that. I, you know, again, just, you play doubles. What's what's your? What's I your- actually, I was always a singles player. So I uh, I was playing with this tennis pro who was kind of trying to get me back in shape. It's been a process because I've had some major injuries over the years, but I just love it. It's you know, it, it puts me in such a good frame of mind. And then, honestly, if I have, when I come back, typically around you know ten, eleven o'clock, I like to do my a deeper thinking. You know, we're doing this podcast, and I did a lot of preparation for it, and I, I was really excited, looking forward to it. But if not, I this is the time of day I would be doing the preparation for it and looking through my articles, and you know, kind of like little heavier thinking. It reminded me of my college days when I used to, like if I did math, math was a little more challenging for me, but I'd have to really have my full concentration. Where did you go to college? I went to uh, Brown University in Rhode Island. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice place. Yeah. Um, and then. I'm, I'm playing with you. I'm, I'm not. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, my friend you know, Phyllis Dennery is the dean of the medical school. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. I remember they were just starting it when I was there. And, and then, you know, then I would come back, I'd have my lunch, usually a little post, Prandial fatigue, you know, I wouldn't mind taking a little nap or you know, just mm-hmm. reading my newspaper. In the ideal world today, which hopefully I would do, I would do, because I've read this, that I would maybe do a little bit of weight training because they say like your muscle strength is better later in the afternoon. Right. Um, so, and then the evening, obviously have a lighter, hopefully dinner. I don't, you know, and then I, you know, enjoy reading. And I like also in the, I, what I found in the evening, because I guess my mind is like, that's a good time to absorb things. So I, you know, I don't want to have to think hard, but if I'm passively reading, if I was reading an article that you wrote, if I was reading a pleasure book or something on business, I, I feel like I'm absorbing a lot. So I, I guess that's my, I mean, does this make sense? I mean, they also, you know, again, this, it was very interesting, this rhythm of life diagram, a few things. Like I tell people, for example, who are constipated, make sure you have breakfast, have high fiber. The best time to take a poop is 
8.30 in the morning, according to this thing, which seems to make sense to me. I guess you've had your bowels been rested the whole night. Hopefully you want to get something going. Yeah, you right? probably processed your last night's meal and mm-hmm. time to get rid of it. Yeah. And you know that all that that all makes that all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone put all those things together so quickly. Okay. okay. Um, so <laughs> it's, but but it all makes it all makes sense. Okay. Well, let's say also too in your research group, you're going to have a research meeting. Okay. Right? And you really wanted it to be productive because you know meetings, a lot of things can go on. You know, until you get really focused, but you have some important stuff you want to get done. Right. Would you like, you know, again, with your knowledge of this stuff, would you say, you know what, we better have this meeting at 11 o'clock, not at like 430 in the afternoon when everybody's thinking well, this, about going this home? This is actually funny. I was a professor at Penn for 10 years. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a, a, a genetics class that I taught at nine o'clock in the morning on it was I think it was Tuesday and Thursday. Mm. And I asked the graduate school, could we please just move it back an hour or two? Uh, just to make sure that the kids were more alert, right? Because they're in their early twenties, and they're not, you know, some of them are not. Oh yeah, they they yeah. go to sleep late. They're talking in the dorm, a few right? drinks, you know, the whole thing. And they said no. <laughs> and, and so I just, I just, I just had to do it. That's when, that's when the the classroom was open, and that's just when it was. Yeah. yeah well, let so, me ask you something. You just brought up something really important too. You see, that's why it's so great having a fun discussion like this. You know, like the whole thing with daylight savings time. And, you know, again, the kids going to school so early. I mean, these days, you know, the parents get them on the bus at 7.30 in the morning. You know, again, right. kids need more sleep. And they're there in the classroom at 8.30 and 9.00. And the teacher's teaching. Are they paying attention? Are they absorbing anything? I mean. Oh, my, my teenagers go at 6.30 in the morning. Oh, Jesus. I mean, is is this a huge mistake? I mean, is that, you know. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. And it's changing, mm-hmm. um, but too slowly. There, there's many school districts like Minneapolis, Seattle. Um, Cincinnati, where I am, just changed their schedule last year. So we're starting to make some inroads here and not making uh, both parents and children miserable. Um, the, the younger kids, you, if you have any, you, you probably know that they don't have a hard time getting up early. Uh, I used to have a... a they a do second. on the weekdays. On the weekends, it's not a problem. <laughs> I used week. to say, seven zero zero. don't be a hero. If you wake me up before 7, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's... But, but it's I starting, also, it's starting yeah. to be recognized by, it, yeah. I mean, by well, local governments and, and, yeah. and school districts, et cetera. You know, I also know, too, I'm, I am so acutely aware of it now, too. Daylight Savings Week, I think that's usually like that first week in November here terrible, in the East Coast. Terrible idea. I, I feel terrible. For, it takes me two weeks. My stomach is off. I know, you know, when I'm supposed to be eating. I just Bad I idea. feel right. I don't know right? why we do it. This is an anachronism from the late 19th century when- It was the our, farming days, right, or something? It was or farming. It was farming. And it boiled down to getting people extra time so they could, when they went home, they could do extra work. Mm-hmm. But we don't really do that anymore. It's, it's probably one percent of America, two percent of America, are, are are really farming like that. And we've all adopted this crazy thing where we where we switch times twice a year. And if you look at the car accident rate or the school performance mm-hmm. or pretty much anything, uh, it all suffers that that subsequent week. Do you think also too? I, I also find it difficult. You know, as we go into the winter and the, you know, in the early darkness, 
I mean, I could be in my office. I'm seeing patients. And don't worry, my patients. I take good care of everybody. I, I push myself hard. Um, but like by 4.30, you know, it's pitch black <laughs> in December. And, you know, I, and I have a window. I, I get to look out to Central Park. It's really nice for my office in New York. But it's Great. pitch black. And I'm starting to like, you know, I'm fortunate I have bright lights in the office. And, you know, I have my tea or my coffee. I mean, but is there anything to do for that? Is, does the bright lights help or whatever to me? Or, and is it okay to push yourself? Because obviously... You know, it's not realistic to say, okay, you know, I'm not a banker. Four o'clock, you know, office hours are over. <laughs> so. Right. We, well, uh, it, it sort of depends on uh, who you are and what your underlying genetics are. Yeah. Uh, it turns out there's, there's people, there's, like I said, there's about, you know, five, 10% of people are early types yeah. and they wake up prior to the sun. And we, we even have patients that, uh, that are almost completely nocturnal with, certain genetic changes mm-hmm. that make them uh predisposed there's there are diseases even where where people are smith mcginnis for example where kids are pretty much uh nocturnal yeah and oh, wow. what we try to to caution them or 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 tell them is it doesn't really matter um what what chronotype you are uh but you should probably think about your job your the things you can change, you should probably, you should probably adapt to it. Well, again, with the bright light help in certain situations, let's say if I, if I struggle, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm probably slightly more toward the uh, owl type a little bit naturally, but I, I can get up early, you know, and stuff like that too. But as I was saying, like in the winter months here, obviously in the East, I'm sure you are in Ohio. It's, you know, it seems like a, like a long, cold, uh, dark winter. And yet, you know, we still have to do our work till a certain time for the most part. You know, like, so with the bright lights sort of helps, to, you know, cause that keeps you, that suppresses the melatonin from starting to rise. That's, I guess that's my question. That's right. Uh, bright lights early in the morning and late at night are the, are the times in which your body is most sensitive to light. It's mm-hmm. almost insensitive during the middle of the day. Okay. Completely insensitive. Okay. And very sensitive earlier in your wake phase and late in your wake phase. And, and so that's when your body's most sensitive. Uh, honestly, like what I try to tell people is, uh, get natural light. Um, be, be in the sun. I, I, I'm right by a bank of windows right now. Mm, yeah. It's um, mm-hmm. And, uh, that's really the best way to do it. I wouldn't mess with with lamps unless i had a job like a shift worker in which case i probably would mess with lamps yeah that's a great idea you know what i try to do if i'm fortunate enough you know let's say it could be the cold winter but on my lunch break i'll go outside for a walk and if it's sunny out you know um i'll I'll find that it really it'll lift me give me that extra surge of energy that i i want for the rest of the day um the last area i want to ask you about which i think is really super important um is about what I guess I would call the the, the field of chronopharmacology. Um, and I've seen, you know, little tidbits of this. Like, for example, it's good to take aspirin at night. You know, as we know, most heart attacks happen early in the morning. It probably has to do with what's called clotting, thrombosis, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Is there, but, you know, we don't get in medicine a lot of training about this. And I don't even think the pharmacists talk to patients about this. Is there a, a good list anywhere about when patients should take certain medications um, that's optimum? This is an excellent question. And I didn't know until I had to go in myself that there is not a great list. 
but there is a way to fix this and it's okay. employed by many hospitals with an Epic plugin. So Epic is for your readers or for okay. your listeners is a, uh, probably the world's largest, uh, uh, medical EMR? record. Yeah. yeah EMR. EMR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, uh, they have a plugin where there are medication timing results for every medication that's prescribed as an after visit summary. So hmm. you go to your visit, your physician prescribes medications and you get this printout and it tells you exactly when to use them. So I, I, at, at the end of my cardiac procedure last year, I looked up all the medications mm-hmm. and the timing and uh, 10 out of 11 were correct. Wow. And, and, and uh, it actually did a shockingly good job at letting you know when to take them. And so I have a, I have a, you know, this is a, I'm 55. I have a pill tray and I have an AM and PM group because mm-hmm. uh, people already know that there, there's only two times a day that people will actually do anything. And that's after waking and before sleep. Right. And, and so the P, the PKs of these drugs are such that some of them, it makes a real difference like aspirin and aspirin is probably the big, the most important uh it's taken by 600 million people a year. Uh, probably the most important. If you, we, if there's one thing we did today, convince people that took aspirin in the morning to switch to before bed, uh, we're probably going to save some lives. Um, so that's really the important. that's probably the the most important drug. But other BP meds, for example, uh, I'm on I'm on metoprolol, mm-hmm. uh, which is a complicated drug because it quenches your melatonin. Uh, so, uh, secretion. So that one should be taken uh, late in your activity phase, but not prior to sleep. Interesting. Mm. And then there's a ton of other medications that are given uh, with, with, uh, with in, in line with your activity cycle. This is so important, you know, because, you know, most of the time, you know, the biggest question people ask, rightfully so, to the doctor, who probably doesn't know half the time, and to their pharmacist is like, um, can I eat, you know, which foods do I have to eat on? Uh, do I have to have food with, which do I have to have in an empty stomach? But they never ask, you know, again, like you're mentioning blood pressure, heart medications, should it be at night? Should it be in the morning? You know, what, cause these things make sense. Like you, again, because our blood pressure, which is affected by our cortisol levels and our inner clocks, right. all have this variation. And I, and I think also, you know, this is very interesting, actually, this is where this came up for me. And I, I, you know, I, I, early in my career, I, and I still do deal with asthmatic patients and, um, you know, for the asthmatic, oh, I see that. Yeah. You're, you're very organized. Very nice. I hope that it has the, the viewers can see that. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, you've, it's all like got a little picture of the sun and the moon. It's all um, laid out for you. But, you know, Dr. Hogan, you know, it's, it's really important. You know, I'll, I'll give you a very example, which I've tried to use chronobiology and chronopharmacotherapy with my patients, with my asthmatics, because, I, again, I was fortunate to learn and, and, and try to focus this, that with my asthmatic patients, I mean, typically uh, nocturnal is bad for them. You know, just when do, when know, do asthmatics die? They die at night? Probably in the early, probably after midnight, you know. They die at night. Yeah, because, again, their cortisol level drops, and that's what's protecting them a little bit. Um, so, but what's interesting, and this is what I, I did learn, and, uh, I, hopefully I'm getting this right all these years, is that, let's say, for example, if I have a patient that's really actively wheezing and their asthma is not controlled, and I have to prescribe oral cortisone, like prednisone, right. I'll typically have them take it in the morning after breakfast, and then 
I had them in the early afternoon around four o'clock. And you might say, well, why wouldn't you do it late at night when their asthma is worse? But you have to also, and I think it's the theme of this whole podcast, that you have to try to do it naturally with their own rhythm and hopefully it gives them that boost during the times when their body is supposed to produce enough cortisol to protect them later on. If what I was taught is if you, it's almost like a dexamethasone suppression test, like where they, and some endocrinologists do this. If you gave the cortisone very late at night, you're actually going to suppress their own cortisol production. So is that correct? I mean, you know, that yeah, show an example. And, where, and, you know, I mean, and we know that drugs like dexamethasone specifically taken over a longer, longer time periods leads to things like, like hospital insomnia, mm-hmm. uh, delirium, those those kind of things. Like uh, I had at, at the time, my twins were probably four years old, and one of them had a, a pretty bad uh, asthma thing. And we we put him on dexamethasone, and he went he went like bad oh, shit yeah. crazy. Yeah, no, it's right again. The t- this, that's a great example, you know, where timing of medication could be so critical in not only getting the optimal benefit but avoiding the adverse side effects. Avoiding the adverse side effects and, and ditto for chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some of the adverse side effects can be avoided through timing. There's a researcher in France, Francois Levy, um, who's been spent the last thirty years working on timing of chemotherapy. So there's many areas. Does this ever get done though? I mean, in the hospitals are very rare. I mean, let's say like place like Sloan Kettering where they're, you know, they're world renowned. Do you think they're doing anything like that? Like where they're saying, okay, you know what? You need to get your chemotherapy for gut, you know, this cancer. We're going to do it at, you know, I would think that Sloan Kettering would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's headed by my former colleague, Craig Thompson. Oh, okay, right. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Put it in him. yeah. And so uh, I would assume that Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or the very best places are doing it, and but it's not uh, reached general practice yet. Okay. All right. My last question, just as hopefully like looking ahead, what are you hoping are going to be the best or the, the greatest breakthroughs in this field over the next five or 10 years that would really hopefully improve people's lives? Actually, I think it's very simple which is uh, that every patient that gets their after-visit summary gets a sheet of paper that tells them when they should take their medications, and that's going to have the biggest impact. Like, yes, I'd like to think that around the bend, there's going to be a Nobel Prize-worthy uh, discovery from the circadian field, and I hope I have it. But mm-hmm. honestly, I don't know that that will move the needle for most patients or most people in the world. I think the thing that could really move the needle would be just just having doctors and pharmacies pay attention to when when patients take their drugs. Simple things like switching from morning to evening uh, or, or bedtime administration of aspirin are, are probably going to, given the, the sheer number of people that take low-dose aspirin, are going to have a bigger impact. That's, that's great advice. Well, Dr. Hogan, where can we send our listeners to find out more about your research or work? Yeah, so there's a couple society. There's a Sleep Research Society, SRS, and the Society for Research on Biological Rhythms, SRBR, um, which are or both websites that contain uh, pages on not just what I I think about research, but also on on what the field thinks. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I learned a tremendous amount. I hope 
all the listeners and viewers on YouTube who get to see this will agree with me. And please, if you did enjoy this podcast, leave us a review. It helps to promote the work that we're doing here and bring some more great guests on. Thanks so much.